Please be seated. It's a beautiful morning, isn't it? So um, it's been a week since Easter Sunday, but our reading today actually takes place in the evening of the resurrection, that, e that evening. A lot has happened before this moment where we enter the story today. The arc of the story from Palm Sunday through Easter morning takes us from the highest highs to the lowest lows and a whole back up again. Excitement, confusion, love, humility, fear, deep grief, crippling doubt, and a sense of wonder. We cycle through all of these emotions. In John's version of the story, it says, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene walked to the tomb. I imagine she didn't sleep very well the night before, heartbroken at the execution of her beloved teacher and friend. So she goes early to the tomb and she sees that the stone has been removed. She runs to tell the others what has happened, running, running, heightened emotion, fear. Someone must have taken the body. Who would do such a thing? Simon, Peter, and John, hearing her story, run back to the tomb to see for themselves. And John gets there first, and he stands outside the tomb, peering in, and he sees the linens that had been wrapped around Jesus' body lying on the ground. And then Simon Peter arrives, and he just bar runs right into the tomb without hesitation, doesn't really even think about it. And he also sees the linens that had wrapped, been wrapped around Jesus' body lying on the ground, but he also sees the shroud that had been wrapped around his head rolled and placed in a spot by itself. And these are the, the details that give depth and meaning and emotion to this story. Then John entered the tomb, and he says that he saw and believed. Now, I don't think that either Simon Peter nor John really understood what had happened. I mean, maybe some of the things that Jesus had said over the weeks sort of came together in John's mind, but I don't think that he truly understood what, what has happened, that it wasn't what was required. He saw and he believed. Then Simon Peter and John returned home. And then, in the next scene, Mary returns to the tomb, and in that story, we witness her weeping outside the tomb. She was brokenhearted, grief on top of grief. She went to grieve and honor Jesus, but he was gone, taken, she assumed. Then she saw these two angels dressed in white standing in the tomb, one where Jesus' head would have been and the other at his feet. And they ask her, why are you crying? And she tells them that someone has taken away her Lord and she has no idea where he is. Grief on top of grief. And then she sees a man that she doesn't recognize and she assumes he's the gardener. And she basically accuses him of taking Jesus' body and then he says her name, and she immediately recognizes him, and she says, Rabunai, teacher, 
I imagine always a, a huge smile on her face. Yes, she's probably confused and a little bit in awe, but I imagine she's also quite undoubtedly joyful. Jesus tells her not to touch him because he hasn't yet ascended to the Father. He's in this funny in-between place. Then he tells her to go and tell the others what she has seen, that he is ascending to his Father and to your Father, to his God and to your God. And so she does. She tells them, I have seen the Lord. She tells them everything that he said to her. And in the next scene, the scene that we read this morning, we meet the disciples later that evening. You would think after Mary had told them this amazing news that they would be rejoicing, maybe even out searching for him. But we find them in the house where the disciples met, probably the same house where they shared dinner with Jesus on Thursday evening, the same house where Jesus got down on his knees and washed their feet. No, they have locked themselves away in this house, not celebrating, but in fear. They are terrified that the religious authorities will come for them just as they came for Jesus. They are lost and afraid, alone and leaderless, no one taking control or telling them what to do next. They had just witnessed the person that they had put their entire faith in, the person they had literally dropped everything to follow. They watched as he was betrayed by one of his own, tried and convicted and brutally executed. What had this all been about? If Jesus truly was the Messiah, surely he couldn't have been killed had they been wrong about him all along? And what were they supposed to do now? Just go back to their quiet lives and hope that no one ever finds them out? They are not in the room making plans for their ministry, the ministry Jesus prepared and empowered them for. No, they're huddled together in fear and confusion and doubt. And even after Mary tells them that she has seen Jesus and shares all that he has said, they don't believe it. They continue to hunger down behind a locked door. It is this moment when Jesus comes to them, and he says simply, peace be with you. And then he shows them his hands and the wound on his side, and they know it's him, their Lord. He hasn't deserted them after all. And they're overwhelmed, perhaps joyful that he really is the Messiah. He's returned to lead them forward once again. And perhaps even more afraid now than when they thought he had abandoned them. Were they up to the task? Peace be with you, he says. And then he says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Then he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. This always reminds me of the creation story in Genesis where God breathes life into Adam. He empowers them. Rather, he reminds them that they already have the power. And he commissions them once again to go out in the world and serve as he has served, to heal, to comfort, to forgive, to teach, 
to love. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Don't huddle in fear in this locked room. Go out and do the work as I have taught you. Jesus understands that his disciples felt lost without him and that he had to return to them in physical form so that they could see and believe, so that they would have the courage to do this work. He knew it wasn't easy what he asked of them. One of the disciples, Thomas, it tells us, was not with them that evening, so he missed Jesus' visit. Timing is everything, right? When he returned to the room and the others told him what had happened, he wouldn't believe it, he said, without seeing and touching Jesus' wounds himself. Poor Thomas gets a bit of a bad rap, doubting Thomas, a nickname that he hasn't been able to shake after 2,000 years. And it's unfair because if the others are honest, were honest, they all doubted Jesus until he appeared to them. They all required proof. A week after Jesus first appeared to the other disciples, he returns to the house. The disciples haven't really made much progress, even after Jesus' visit. They're still hunkered down in the house. This time, Thomas is there, and Jesus says to him, as he did previously, peace be with you. Then he tells Thomas to put his fingers on the wounds in his hands and on his side. And then he says, Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas does. He touches Jesus' wounds. Immediately, he recognizes Jesus and then makes a profound confession of faith, saying, Jesus, my Lord and my God. And Jesus asks him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe. Now, John, the gospel writer, is telling this story to those who came after, those like us who didn't have the opportunity to meet Jesus in the flesh or to touch his wounds. John is speaking to those who are asked to believe and to follow without the benefit of seeing Christ risen in the flesh. And John understands how much is being asked of them, of us. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. This is a wild story. We forget sometimes because we're so familiar with a story, we forget how wild, how utterly unbelievable the story is. It defies logic. Jesus died a painful death. He was anointed with myrrh and aloes and wrapped in linen from head to toe. He was carried to the tomb, a stone rolled into place to cover the opening, and then, and then the tomb was empty. Something happened in that tomb and in the days that followed that changed the world forever. It's a wild story, and if you're anything like me or probably most of us, the resurrection and ascension of Christ is a difficult concept to wrap our minds around, but it's the cornerstone of our faith, and we can't just brush it aside. This story moves us beyond the normal realm of our experience or anything that our mortal minds can comprehend. It goes against the laws of nature. 
For most of us, we believe in what we can understand, what we can see, and what we can touch. The disciples didn't believe until they saw Christ in the flesh. How much easier would faith be if we could touch Jesus' wounds? If he were to show up here this morning, not in word or liturgy or spirit, but in the flesh, put out his hands and allow us to touch those wounds. The rest of the Jesus story, even the miracles, can be rationalized and understood. Jesus' ministry is easy to understand, healing and teaching and preaching and loving. The story of the passion, the crucifixion, is of this world, solid and real and deeply disturbing, but eminently understandable. The betrayals, the sadness and confusion of the disciples is so human and real and relatable, but the resurrection is hard to wrap our minds around because we aren't intended to wrap our minds around it. We aren't intended to believe with our minds and with our logic. On Easter Sunday, Jimmy asked us to close our minds and open our hearts. The resurrection story calls us to suspend disbelief, to ignore our logical minds, to listen with our hearts. That's how we can receive this story, the only way that we can really receive this story. And without the resurrection, this is a great story. With the resurrection, it's a transformational story. Faith doesn't require intellectual understanding. John saw and believed. He didn't say he understood. God doesn't operate within the limits of what we can see and touch or make any sense of whatsoever. And the miracle of Easter calls us to trust God, to trust God with all that we are, to entrust ourselves in our everyday lives to something we cannot see or physically touch or truly understand the mystery of God. Many of us have experiences of God, our own symbolic touching of the wounds that break through the walls of rationality. We experience the presence of God in our lives in unique and profound ways. We can't explain it, but we know we've experienced God's touch, God's love, moments of clarity, when you feel the presence of God and know beyond a doubt that God is true, that we're loved beyond measure, that our lives mean more than this fleeting existence. But doubt is so human. And during those times when, when God feels more distant, or I, I don't know about you, but I question if God is even there at all, Times I want to lock myself away in that room, giving in to my fear and my doubt. Then I look up, I look out at all of you, and I see the embodiment of God. And I know that God's love is real and true and a living thing. I see it. I see the experience. I see, I witness to God's presence in each and every one of you. 
God, Jesus told us to love one another as he loved us. And by this, all people will know that we are his disciples. We have love for one another. And through that love, through your love, I know God. And I know that it is the most powerful force in the universe to love one another as he has loved us. Amen.